0: When Dean Sissman discovered that companies had no way of tracking the devices on his network, he knew it was a big problem that needed to be solved. Dean founded Exonius to make comprehensive and efficient cybersecurity asset management a reality for businesses around the world. Today... Exonius is one of the fastest-growing cybersecurity companies, and to date, he's raised nearly $200 million. Dean shares with us his entrepreneurial path and vision, insights on the Exonius asset management platform, and his leadership philosophy centered on growth. We hope you enjoy the show. Dean, thanks so much for taking the time. Delighted to chat with you today. I want to kick off with something I think is pretty interesting in that you have on your LinkedIn profile, Asset Management is Sexy. I also read in parallel that you refer to your company as the Toyota Camry of cybersecurity. So is it that you think Toyota Camrys are sexy?
1: (laughs) So first, let's make a distinction. We're talking about asset management for enterprise infrastructure, right? We're not talking about money, if if that's confusing to others in the audience. We're talking about how do we make sure that organizations know all the assets, devices, identities, applications that are in their infrastructure, and are they secure and are they operating to the fullest efficiency. So that's what we do. The reason we call it an unsexy problem, if you'd like, I'll get into the sort of the origination story. But that metaphor to the Toyota Camry happened when we won what is considered the most prestigious prize for a cybersecurity startup. It's called the RSA Innovation Sandbox. All the past winners have had tremendous success, many of them public companies or have been acquired for multiples of billions. And when Nate was on our call here, I was supposed to come up to the stage and do Um, A presentation, but my flight got canceled due to snow. And what we wanted to talk about to the audience is the fact that people are very much drawn to the most cutting edge of technology, right? Like AI, orchestration, deception, threat hunting, all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, we asked the audience, who here has had a poster of a car on their walls when they were a teenager. And a lot of people in the audience raised their hands. And then he asked them, how many of you had a poster of a Toyota Camry? And obviously the entire audience laughs and nobody raises their hand. And the reason is that, you know, Ferraris and Lamborghinis and all that, they're the cutting edge, right? They're the most exciting, sexy kind of technology. But if you look at what really the world needs, it needs the most common foundational Value offering like a Toyota Camry, and you can compare, you know, the number of sales or the revenue numbers, and that's sort of the metaphor we wanted to give. There was this foundational problem of asset management that, regardless of how advanced we see solutions out in the cybersecurity market, this foundational problem has never been solved, and it's much, much bigger and more in depth in terms of market size and opportunity than those other things. But it sort of got under the radar because it wasn't a sexy.
0: Mm -hmm. Makes complete sense. And, And when folks hear the word cybersecurity, for some people, it's a black box. And for others, it's more which segment of cybersecurity, what aspect to the technology. And yours, it seems to be quite pervasive. And I want to dig into that. Hence, the Toyota Camry comparison, everyone, a lot of people drive the Toyota Camry and most companies could use your technology. So let's talk about that. What was missing
1: before your company came along? Great question. So I'll start with a little bit of background on me. And if it's not too of a long-winded answer, I'll get into the origination story of Xonis to answer your question. So I've always loved technology and computers. I learned how to program by myself when I was 12. I was part of the team that won the International Robotic Olympics in South Korea when I was 15. And I finished my bachelor's degree in computer science when I was 19. I did it during high school. Then I went into Israeli intelligence, as a lot of cybersecurity founders' stories are. Spent five years in the Israeli equivalent of the NSA, called Unity. 8200. And after leaving the army, I wanted really to join a startup. I wanted to make a difference in the world. I didn't want a nine to five. And my previous company where I was CTO and co-founder was called Symmetria. It was about one of those Ferrari-like solutions. It was called Cyber Deception. And essentially, it was in a time where regardless of how much an organization invested in their cybersecurity, they will get hacked anyway. So we thought about the fact that the controls today don't protect against the most advanced kinds of threats, but you can utilize your home court advantage to trick them into revealing themselves. So we got called into one of the biggest companies in the world, I can't mention their name, but you can probably guess. I went to their headquarters in the Midwest, And we start to deploy our solution. What it does is creates all these traps and decoys in the network. And if anybody interacts with these, obviously it's an attacker. So after a couple of days, we saw something starting to interact with one of our decoys and actually installing code and infecting that machine that we put in there. And when you looked at the forensics, it was a very well-known research group that some other companies have attributed to the Chinese government, right? So we go to the team we were working with and we're like, hey, look, we found this incredibly advanced state-sponsored threat actor inside your network. And this is very clear-cut evidence that they were operating there. The team that I was working with go, yeah, you know, that's nice. Thanks for showing this to us. And I stop and I'm like, wait, guys, aren't you, (laughs) aren't, where's the excitement? I thought this would be more of a shock to you and would impress you guys. So they said, well, look, first of all, we knew this was going on because we got tipped off, and that's one of the reasons we brought you guys in, so thank you for confirming. But really the other problem is there's not a lot we can do right now with this information. And I said, well, look, there's this device where the attack came from, right? This is a real machine in your environment that the attacker is operating from. Let's research this machine and we can find out more about the threat and take actions against it. Um, they said, well, we're not we don't know what this machine is because I brought them you know the IP address, the host name, And I said, no, guys, this is not a decoy. This is a machine, a real machine in your network. And they say, yeah, we know. We don't know what it is or why it's there. So I told them, look, aren't you the global security team? They're like, yeah, but there's a lot of parts of our network that we don't know what's there, what they're doing. So I said, well, if somebody's sitting behind the keyboard of this thing and wants to install a piece of software, what happens? They're like, well, they'll open a ticket and one of the endpoint or workstation tools that we have, we'll use that to solve software change configuration or whatever. And I said, great, then let's just open up all those tools and look for this machine. And they said, oh, okay. And they gave me this list that was way longer than I imagined of about 20-something tools that they use. Some of them they don't have access to, even though the, the global security team for political reasons. And we look through those tools and we don't find that machine. And then we go to the security operations center. We look through a lot of logs. We find thousands of different logs that could be relevant, but looks like they're all noise. Then we even went to the networking team and we asked them, do you know what this device is? And they didn't. And we ended that day by them emailing people, do you know what this device is? So this is exactly that sort of Toyota Camry analogy. We came in trying to sell Ferrari and it looks like even though we found one of the most advanced possible threats in the world, there's nothing we could do about it because they didn't even know why the device was there or who's managing it. Mm -hmm. So the next day I go in and I ask them, do you even know how many devices do you have? Just a number. They go, yeah, we know it's between one and a half to three million. (laughs) And, you know, I sort of grin. I'm like, guys, you know, not to say anything bad about what you're doing, but doesn't that mean that you don't know? You know, that's too wide of a range. It means you don't know what's going on in your network. And they say, no, you know, it's very dynamic. There's stuff coming in and out. And to give the example of some of our audience will relate to, if you think about finance, finance is very dynamic, too. There is, you know, incoming, outgoing money flows all the time. But if you go to a CFO and you ask them how much money is on our balance sheet, and they'll go, oh, we have between 200 to $400 million. You're not going to have a lot of confidence in that CFO, right? Because that variance is too big. So I asked them, where'd you get to that number? And they said, well, it's very hard to tell what's actually in our environment. And there was a guy there who worked for a long time And he said, look, you know, in the past, computing environments used to be very homogenous, right? Like one type of device, one operating system, one network, one management console, each one of those things I mentioned. Now we have dozens of different instances of. And what you end up with is all these controls who look at a very specific problem and they create all this data, but everything's very fragmented. And in order to get the answer, you really have to go into all those different places, collect all the data together, and then only will you have a comprehensive view of everything. And that's actually Exonius. That's what we ended up doing. And since we started about four years ago, we've been the fastest growing cybersecurity company by revenue compared to any kind of information we've been able to find.
0: Yeah, it's phenomenal how fast you've grown. So skipping ahead, you've raised a lot of money, or a good amount for the short amount of time you've been in business. Tell us how you went about selecting
1: your investors Yeah, so first of all, today, $195 million doesn't seem that much. Obviously, we're all aware of the climate of the just huge amount of dry powder going after a very small select number of core platform software companies. And between my time as founder and both my companies, I've done seven rounds of funding. I've raised over close to a quarter billion dollars. I've had 15 different funds and VCs invest in me, and I've probably done uh, way too many investor calls for any person in their lifetime. And I can tell you that it's really, what kind of vision do you have for your company That really determines how you use capital to grow. And we have a very, very large vision. You know, all our leadership team wants to do this for as long as we can. I'd be happy doing this job when I'm 60 and still running this like many well-known software founding CEOs that actually have a technical background. And really what we're seeing in the market today is that because of COVID, and this was true even before, but COVID really accelerated it. Is that the top companies of market cap of growth today are technology companies and technology is taking over more and more of our lives. And if you think about the growth that's possible for a software company like us, it's just tremendous, right? In some of our years we've more than tripled, we're doubling and tripling our revenue every year. It's true for customer counts, employee counts. And if you think about why there's so many cybersecurity companies out there, it's because if we continue with the analogy of the Ferrari, right? So if you're driving a Ferrari, you're going really fast around the track. And if somebody would have told you, drive this Ferrari, but the braking system is from a Toyota Camry, you wouldn't go into that car. And if you would have, you would have driven it very slowly. You wouldn't have taken advantage of the speed That the technology gives you because you need the brakes in order to be able to control and change directions in order to accommodate to that speed. And that's exactly what cybersecurity or in general enterprise software does for organizations that want to utilize more technology. The more technology you use, the faster you want to go, the more you need those brakes, which is the controlling aspect of cybersecurity. So when you look at our solution, it's comprehensive, but On a very foundational level, it helps you understand what is my breaking system, which direction am I turning, what technologies am I utilizing, and are they really implemented and executing to the level that I want by us understanding the connections of all of them getting data from all of them and really giving you one comprehensive view of everything you have whether it's somebody working from home or you know a mobile phone in a Starbucks or a container in the cloud or an IoT device in a factory
0: mm-hmm. got it and so i guess back to the investor question you've gotten to know a lot of them could you tell us like what you've particularly found helpful with certain investors how they've added value You could also comment on kind of what you've learned to avoid, maybe,
1: working with certain (laughs) capital providers. That's a much longer answer than the (laughs) the answer. So look, I'll start with my own experience is my own experience, right? So I can only talk from that standpoint and not to others. But really, I've had so many different kinds of funds work with me from growth funds, from seed funds, from territorial to global. I've had investors do the worst you can imagine. I've had investors invest, invest in competitors, even though I told them if they do that, they would lose their information rights. I've had investors threaten to sue me because I wanted to do a decision that they didn't agree with and they just threatened me in that way. I've had investors who told me I know nothing I'm doing and you know, without the board, we would be a failure. I've had investors try and convince me to fire my co-founders. So it's that list is very, very long. And what I'll tell you is, first of all, you need to understand the viewpoint of an investor when you work with them, right? They have their own incentives, right? They're on their own career path. They want to get their return. They want to have that impressive logo under their belt. And something that I've seen that works way better for me, and I think this is true for many others, is you want to partner with an investor that has a very similar mindset to both. What are the values that you have as a leader? What are the values that you have as an organization And really find alignment with those values, because if you don't, then you're going to have a lot of clashes and a lot of friction. And second, finding aligned incentives, right? For example, you can go to a historical managing partner at a fund, a guy who's done, I don't know, or a girl who's done several IPOs, and you'll take their investment. And honestly, you're not going to be their biggest story in their life, right? You're probably not going to be the thing that they tell their grandchildren about, you know, this was my biggest deal. And yet you can go to a very hungry, very smart, less senior partner and see really their drive to make you the most successful possible because it aligns with their incentives, right? So I'll give that one as my viewpoint. The second is really the human connection, right? You're entering into a marriage that's very hard to break up. I know because I've seen that happen in my company and others where you really want to make sure that to the worst scenarios, you'll still be able to trust what their decisions are going to be, how they're going to behave, and really find that sort of marriage alignment. Mm-hmm.
0: And this leads us to a topic I typically like to hit on, which is leadership. And and you've got, you know, a very deep background I'd say in leadership. You were in, you know, the military previously Israeli Defense Forces and then you've been leading companies and fighting battles along the way like any other entrepreneur. Can you tell us a little bit about your leadership philosophy?
1: Yeah, so this is very true to what is our core values and Sonia's first is independence, and the second is motivation. We're big believers in the fact that smart people who who are ambitious, who want to grow, who have very high aspirations, need to be independent and need to be able to make their own decisions. And What I tell every single manager in my company, every single leader, is that they should see their manager, their boss, as a board with them being the CEO of their area of ownership and responsibility, right? And this is very true to the way I see my board, right? Our board is very experienced. It's very knowledgeable. And I count on their advice. But once I get the advice from them and I get the allocation of resources, at that point, all the decisions are mine because I'm going to have to own up to those decisions. And I need to be able to make the decisions for myself after considering all the aspects that they give me. And this is the way we want to run our company, right? We want every single person here to feel independent, to feel they have ownership. And one example is that when I interview candidates, I end up giving a summary of what I thought, but I leave the decision ultimately up to that hiring manager. And there's been cases where that hiring manager decided to hire someone that I gave a very negative feedback on, but I supported their decision and committed behind what they decided to do. And I was proven wrong. Like wanna, you know, We have people who went through that path and today are amazing employees in the company. And I'm very happy to be proven wrong in those scenarios. And then that leads me to our last part of our value for me as a leader and for other people, which is the word growth, right? Growth is what we all aspire to do. This is why we do what we do. And that's not only in metrics of revenue or customers or employees. It's the growth that we give our customers in their careers, in their organizations. We want to make them heroes within their organizations. And even more than than our customers is our employees. When you sign up to come here and work your ass off and, you know, do things that have meaning and impact, you're going to need to receive your own personal growth in order to do that. And one of the things around growth is that, by definition, growth happens outside your comfort zone. So growth feels uncomfortable. It doesn't feel easy. It doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel straightforward. And I think one of the unique characteristics of us as an organization and of my philosophy to leadership is help people be pushed into a state of being uncomfortable in order to really maximize their potential, their growth. One of the characteristics that is beautiful in our organization is that many people who lead a department or lead a function have been the first person to do that in this company. Nate, our head of marketing, was our first marketing hire. Joe, our head of sales, was our first sales hire. And they've all, and many other examples, and they've all grown way beyond anything past in their careers your next son is.
0: Well, fantastic. We're coming up on time here, but I'd like to ask one last question. And that is, who do you think of as a great leader, present or historical in business or otherwise? Who do you really think has best exemplified the leadership values that you hold
1: true? I think I draw inspiration from a lot of leaders. I wouldn't want to name any of the common mm-hmm. ones just because I don't want to exclude anybody else. But I would say, and this is there's a very well-known Hebrew proverb that I'll translate into English that comes from the Bible. And it's, I think, correct me if I'm mistaken, but it says, from all my students, I've become wise, right? So to me, the most inspiring leaders are our employees. When I see the kinds of things that they do, their own personal growth, that really inspires me to understand the level of responsibility I have when they decided to join and said, we believe in you to make the right decisions and actions to maximize our growth. And I would say that if that's not too corny of an answer.
0: No, I think it's a great answer and a good note to end on. So Dean, thank you so much for taking the time again. And I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thank you.